Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So I'm not a big fan of reality TV, but there is one show in particular that I like to watch, and it's called Restaurant Impossible on the Food Network. And if you've never seen it, the, the premise of the show is quite simple. It's Chef Robert Irvine, who is a, he, from Britain, and he's got a real tough, strong personality, and he goes to a restaurant that is in dire need. He goes to a restaurant that's in bad shape, and he has a short amount of time and $10,000 to apply his expertise to the difficult situations this rest, these restaurants are facing and turn them around. And so it's really interesting to watch him come in and to analyze everything that's going on in the restaurant to see how bad the kitchens are and how poorly it's managed and how the owners, in many cases, think nothing is wrong whatsoever. And there are some episodes, and if you, you can go and watch it, I'm sure you can buy episodes on your TV these days. If you go back and watch some of them, you will see some things that just will make you shudder. There's one particular episode where he goes into a kitchen and they remove the one of the, the main appliances in the kitchen and they discover that the, the grease trap has been broken for years and it's just been pouring grease into the walls and under the floor and the restaurant is contaminated and it's so bad and it's so disgusting at some point you just have to look away and so he really is dealing with very difficult impossible situations and so this morning we've come to the gospel of mark and like an episode from restaurant impossible we come to a particular episode in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's really two episodes. And Jesus is presented with an impossible situation. An impossible situation. But like I said to the kids earlier in the children's church message, we have a God, we have a Savior, we have a Redeemer who can do the impossible. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 2. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you that your word is true, that when we come to your word, you speak to us and you give us grace. You strengthen our hearts. You encourage us. So Father, we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would give us grace, that you would, that you would strengthen us, that you would change us and help us through your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So there are four things we're going to look at this morning. Four things. First of all, our heart, then our Redeemer, thirdly, our soul, and lastly, His church. Our heart, our Redeemer, our soul, and then lastly, His church. Now, before we jump into those four things, there, there, I think there are some things worth mentioning in this passage. First of all, you're going to see over the next couple of weeks five consecutive stories of accusation. Mark is going to begin to show how Jesus is gaining in popularity. More people are getting to know who Jesus is. They're hearing about what he is able to do. And his, his influence is 
is growing exponentially. At the same time, as more people are becoming aware of who he is and what he is capable of doing, you're going to see more accusers rise up and point to Jesus and to challenge his ministry. And so that's, Mark is going to unfold that over the course of the next few weeks. The second thing I want you to see is in the latter part of this, our passage this morning is the tax collector. So we see that Jesus is calling Levi. This is Matthew. He's being called to the ministry. He's being called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a tax collector. And you've probably heard it said so many times that tax collectors were people in that society that were not respected. It's kind of hard for us to understand because we don't like paying our taxes. We don't like doing our taxes. But we understand on some level that it's our responsibility as citizens. And we tend to look at IRS agents as government officials, for the most part. Government officials doing their job, legally doing their job. But you have to understand that in the time of Jesus, tax collectors were difficult people for the Jewish people in Israel to deal with because they had sided with the Roman government. And for them, the Roman government was oppression. So when they saw their, their fellow neighbors aligning themselves with the Roman government who was oppressing them, that was a very difficult thing. Secondly, tax collectors bought their role. And so in order to be paid back, in order to make a living, they would approach taxes as a means by which they could receive gain. And so many times they would do things that were very unethical in order to line their own pocketbooks. And so when the people of Jesus' day in Israel, the Jews, looked at tax collectors, they, these were people that they did not resonate with. These were people that they considered the dregs of society, if you will. In fact, the New Living Translation goes so far as in mentioning sinners and tax collectors to call them scum. They were viewed as traitors to their culture, that they had turned their back on their friends and neighbors. The other thing that I want you to understand is that in this particular passage, Matthew is more of a toll collector than a tax collector. He is on a route that is a major trading route in the ancient Middle East. He's positioned on that route, and he has, through the Roman government, the right to tax goods as they are coming through this thoroughfare. So he is like a toll collector, an unethical toll collector. The third thing that I think is important to see in this passage is the roof. I've heard, and most of you have heard the story of the, the paralytic being lowered through the roof on the mat over the course of your life many times. And I've always wondered how were they able to do this? And so I spent a little bit of time this week trying to better understand what roofs were like at the time of Jesus. And to help you better understand what's going on in this text, 
I want to, I want to explain how the roofs were, were designed. There were parallel beams that were placed on the top of the house. And then over these parallel beams, they would lay down palm branches and branches and bushes and scrap pieces of wood. Then they would take earth, dirt, and they would place it on top of it and they would pack it down. So a roof in the time of Jesus was about two feet thick. And in the summer, the rooftop would actually grow grass. And so that, I hope that helps you understand on some level how they were able to dig through the roof. They're digging through earth. They're digging potentially through grass. They're digging through branches and palm branches in order to get to Jesus. I've always wondered about that. And so I wanted to just share that with you to help you understand a little bit about what is taking place in Mark chapter 2. And then there are the Pharisees. The bad guys. Over and over again in the Gospels, we are introduced to the Pharisees and we see them in conflict with Jesus. And so we often think in terms of the bad guys. But I think that's too simplistic. I think we need to understand who were the Pharisees during the ministry of Jesus. First of all, the word Pharisee in Hebrew means the separate ones. Now, there's a lot of debate about what they were separated from. I think there's a strong case can be made by, by many scholars that it means that they are separating themselves from the influence of foreign cultures, particularly Greek culture, during the intertestamental period. That means between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a group formed called the Pharisees who felt like Greek culture and then Roman culture had too much of an influence on Jewish life. Thus, we are going to separate ourselves from them. We're going to protect our beliefs and our cultures and our families. Now, the Pharisees were lay leaders within Jewish culture. There's a second group that you read about in the Gospels called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the chief, were the priestly leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, the Pharisees would have looked at the Sadducees and said, they're corrupt, they don't take the Bible as seriously as we do, they commingle too easily with the political leaders of the day. And thus, temple worship is improper. And so, we, the Pharisees, are trying to protect the word of the Lord, the writings of Moses, so that the people of God can obey God and worship Him correctly. Those are the Pharisees. Now, that within itself sounds like a good thing. Hey, we take the Word of God seriously. We believe in the future resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. We believe that worship should be treated seriously. We think that the worship at the temple led by the Sadducees is defiled. So all of that, in some sense, sounds good. But there's something else that you need to know about the Pharisees. 
they protected an oral tradition of commentary on the five books of Moses. They believed in the oral tradition. They believed that not only Moses gave his people the written word, they also believed that God gave Moses, excuse me, that God gave Moses the written word, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But that God also gave Moses the oral tradition, and the oral tradition had been passed down by scribes and rabbis through the ages. And the oral tradition helped you understand how to obey God's law perfectly. It built a fence around the Mosaic law to protect Israel from breaking the commandments. That, even within itself, sounds like a good thing. Laws to help you avoid breaking God's commandments. But what Jesus is going to point out in the course of his ministry, that these laws go beyond what God intended, that you have made up man-made rules that are self-righteous, and that these man-made rules are not leading you closer to God, they're leading you further away from God. So our first point revolves around our hearts, our evangelistic hearts. I love the story of the paralytic because you see the passion that his friends, perhaps as his family members, have to bring this man to Jesus. They dig through the roof. And one of the reasons that I wanted to study the roof is I wanted to come to a better understanding of, was this an instantaneous thing or did this take time? And I think by the very nature of how the roofs were constructed that this took time to dig through this roof, perhaps in the back of the room, in order to bring this man to Jesus. They're committed, they're passionate, they're excited, they have an understanding of who Jesus is because we see in the text that Jesus commends their faith. They look at their friend perhaps their family member, perhaps their brother, they see his paralysis, they understand who Jesus is, and they say, we have to stop at nothing to get him from point A to point B. And that's an encouragement to my soul. That Jesus doesn't stop them from digging through the roof. He knows what's happening. The first time the first piece of the roof fell to the ground, Jesus knew what was happening. He doesn't stop them. And he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for coming through the roof either. How, how dare you do this? How dare you tear up this home? He doesn't. What does he do? He commends their faith. And so when I come to this text, when I come to Mark chapter 2, my heart builds up with excitement for who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. And as I examine my own heart, I begin to realize I need to have that same excitement. I need to have that same belief. I need to have that same passion in terms of bringing people to Jesus. That it does not need to be an afterthought that it needs to be a part of who I am, it needs to be a part of my life, that I pursue people who do not know Christ so that they can come through the roof into His presence and they can understand the joy and the peace and the goodness that is Christ. 
that more often than not, I don't have that excitement. And so this text is a reminder to me of what it means to bring people to Jesus. So I talk a good bit about our theology, what we believe, that that we are reformed. And one of the things about belonging to the reformed tradition is that we trust in the sovereignty of God. And that's great. That is fantastic. It's wonderful. We believe that God is in control of all things, that we believe that God is even in control of salvation. Scripture tells us that He's in control of of everything. So how could anything be apart from His divine sovereignty? And so we believe in that. We trust in that. And it's wonderful so that when you share your faith, that when you spend time with people who may not know Jesus, that ultimately it's up to God that He will save them, that He will change their heart, that He will redeem them. But sometimes that can be too great of an excuse for us. That we don't have the urgency to see people come to Christ. We, re- we rest too much in the sovereignty of God. He'll take care of it. He'll do it. He's in charge. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign. But Scripture tells us that we are the instruments by which people come to faith. God uses us in the lives of people to help them to come to know His beloved Son. So yes, we trust in God. We trust in His sovereignty. We know that it's up to Him. But we have an urgency about us in bringing people before the cross. And when we look at Mark chapter 2 and we see the friends of the paralytic, we're reminded of this. That we are to go forth. That there is an urgency. That our hearts should be given over to seeing people experience the majesty that is Jesus. Second point, our Redeemer, our trustworthy Redeemer. So I mentioned in the beginning, Restaurant Impossible. And I think the closest restaurant that where an episode was filmed is in Tupelo. And it's a steakhouse there. And it's, if you watch the episode, it's, it's a very difficult scenario, impossible, if you will. And R- Robert Irvin comes in and he works with the restaurant and he makes a lot of changes. And Woody's Steakhouse is one of the few restaurants that has made it. There have been 174 episodes, last I checked, and 108 restaurants have closed. He goes in, he tries to do the impossible, and 108 times the restaurants have closed. But in Tupelo, it made it. And I went and I read an article from the local newspaper about her experience. And one of the things that she said that was really interesting is, I knew I had to listen to this man. I knew he was an expert. And I knew that our only chance was to trust the advice that he was giving us about this restaurant. Hear that. Trust the advice that he is giving us about this restaurant. They believed in his words. They believed in what he was saying. And when we come to this passage, I love what Jesus says. In the first episode, we see the paralytic on the mat, and we see that the Pharisees 
are doubting his claims. The Pharisees are beginning to understand that Jesus is calling himself the Son of God. And in verses 8 through 11, he says to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. So Jesus has the right words. The Pharisees are questioning him, and Jesus has the right words. He presents them with a challenge. And he says, what's easier, to forgive someone of their sins or to heal them? Jesus knows exactly what to say in the moment. He has the right answers. And then when you look down at verse 17, the, he's dining in a home with sinners and tax collectors. And the Pharisees comes, come to his disciples. And they're, they just really don't understand what's happening. They really don't understand what's taking place. How can he recline at the table and eat with, as the New Living Translation says, the scum? Now remember, they were all about protecting the Word of God, protecting the law of God, and helping Jewish people to obey God. And so what, when they see Jesus eating and dining with sinners, with Gentiles, their first thought is, He is not going to be able to obey the Word of God. He is disparaging God's Word. And then Jesus has the right answers. Jesus knows the right thing to say. He comes to them and he says, Those who are well, you think you're well. You think you're righteous. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, excuse me, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amidst the confusion and chaos of that moment, where the Pharisees think that Jesus is transgressing the Word of God, He knows the right thing to say. He knows the right thing to say to the Pharisees in the, in the home with the paralytic on the mat in front of Him. Jesus always knows the right thing to say. And I love looking at Mark 2, 1-17, because you see Jesus responding at the right time and saying the right thing. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The word of God is true. Jesus is the word of God that has come in the flesh. He knows how to say the right thing at the right time every single time. And so as I look at this text and I step back from it, Here's what it tells me, is that the words of Jesus are true and they are what I need to hear. I need to hear this. We live in a world where there's a, there's a lot of chatter. From social media to television to friends to neighbors. There's a lot of communication that's taking place. Going in one ear, going out the other. And the words of the world are not wise. The words of the world are not true. 
And so I need the words of Jesus. I need the right person saying the right thing at the right time every single time. I need to hear Jesus. I need to hear what he has to say. Because if you look at the world, if you listen to the world, it's confusing. It's very confusing. And it can lead you astray. It can lead you from the wisdom that is God's word. It can lead you away from the truth of scripture. And so as I listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 2, as I hear him speak, as I see his wise counsel in a difficult situation, I know that I need to double down on the word of God. I need to listen. I need to stop and take time and listen. I need to digest His Word. Because it's the only thing that's going to lead me on the right path in this life. Psalms, the book of Psalms says that the Word of God is the light for our path. I need that because if we don't have that light, we're going to wander off into the woods. And so when I see Jesus speak, and I see Him speak so carefully and wonderfully in the Gospels, It draws me closer to Him. It brings me in and it says, listen. Listen. These are the divine words of our Savior who came to rescue us. Hear what He has to say. The third point, we've looked at our evangelistic hearts, our trustworthy Redeemer. Third is our sinful souls. Our sinful souls. The Westminster Confession of Faith, again, talking about the Reformed tradition, talking about what we believe. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 6 says this about sin. And it's a great statement. Listen to this. Every sin, both original and actual, transgresses the righteous law of God and brings guilt on the sinner. Every sinner is consequently subjected to the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and death, with all the resultant miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So what the confession is saying is that our sin condition is whole. Our sin condition is terrible. That it affects every single fiber of who we are. That we are born in sin, and then we live in sin. That we commit sins as we breathe in and we breathe out. But one of the interesting things when you study the Word of God is not only do we actually commit sins aggressively, we also commit sins passively. There are sins that we commit that we're not even aware of the fact that we committed. And so, again, as I said, we, bre- we sin as we breathe in and we sin as we breathe out. It affects every part of who we are. And we inherit it from our first parents. And so this sin condition dooms us. This sin condition submits us to the wrath of God, His punishment against our disobedience. It is total. It is complete. And there is no escaping from it apart from Jesus Christ. And so we are in a difficult position. 
And so Jesus comes to the paralytic, and Jesus, again, wise, right words of a divine Savior. He looks at the paralytic, and he says, your biggest problem is not that your legs don't work. Your biggest problem is that your heart doesn't work. And so Jesus comes to all of us, and he says, your biggest problem is not what's going on at work, or how you feel, or this that you're struggling with. Your biggest problem is the condition of your heart, the sin that is within you. And the struggles that you have in this life are a result of the sin that's within your heart. The the struggles that you have in this life result from the fact that the whole world has fallen also because of sin. That sin is our biggest issue. It is our biggest problem. And so Jesus tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Something that we all need to hear. Jesus knows that this is what has got to be atoned for. That is why Jesus willingly goes to the cross. That is why Jesus left the throne room of heaven for us. He knows the Father's love that He has for His people. He knows that the Father looks upon us and wants us to be in fellowship with Him. And so Jesus leaves the presence of the Father in order to come and to redeem us and to make us right. We need forgiveness desperately. We we need the comfort and we need the joy and we need the surety and we need the hope that forgiveness brings. Look, I know my own heart. And I know that it's sinful. And I know that I'm not the husband I should be. I know that I'm not the father I should be. I know that I'm not the pastor and church planter I should be. I know I'm not the person I should be. The struggle with sin is great. And it's real. And it's difficult. And it's challenging. And every day you wake up and you deal with it. And the older I get, the more pronounced sin seems to become. It just seems like it's everywhere. I remember as a child listening to sermons and thinking that sin basically meant you don't, you don't murder someone, you don't rob a bank, and they always had the illustration for children, and you don't cheat on your test at school. And that was sort of my understanding of sin. If you don't do those things, those three things, you're, you're okay You're all right. And the older I get, I'm just coming to a deeper and fuller understanding of how sinful I am and how sinful the world is and how oppressive and depressing sin is and how it just seems to pursue you all the time. And it's it's as if it's trying to drag you down and it's, it's discouraging when you interact with people and they don't understand their own sin. They don't, they don't see how overwhelming it is. And here's Jesus. And He comes to us. And He gives us the gift of forgiveness. He is taking it all away. And that is is an incredible encouragement 
to my soul. And it helps me to take one more step forward in this journey that's called the Christian life. It gives me hope. It gives me peace. It gives me joy. It, it attunes my heart to the cross. I, I desperately need this forgiveness. And I know that in Jesus, I have it. And it's the greatest thing that the Father can give me through Christ because it means that because I'm forgiven, because I have right standing in Christ, that I belong to Him. You see, and let, if I don't have forgiveness, then I can't come into the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. It's the key that unlocks the door. And I need it. We all need it. And in this text, Mark chapter 2, 1 through 17, if Mark is trying to tell us anything, he's trying to tell his audience that you need forgiveness. And Jesus gives it to the paralytic, and Jesus is giving it to those that recline at the table with him. We need it. We need the forgiveness that Christ and Christ alone offers. And then finally, our fourth point is the church. His church is for sinners. His church is for sinners. So a few years ago, I was in my hometown and visiting my parents. And I had a kidney stone. Now there's another way to say that. Somebody was trying to murder me. I've never, honestly, I've never been in so much pain in my entire life. I broke my ankle very badly once in college. It did not approach the level of pain that I had with that kidney stone. And I remember getting in my dad's truck, and he said, we're going to get you help. And we're, the, the nearest hospital is 10 minutes. And... I'm not making this up. The name of the hospital is the holy name of Jesus, hospital. Okay? So when, you have, when you're having a kidney stone attack, there is no better place to be than the holy name of Jesus, hospital. That's where I needed to go. That's where I needed to be because I thought I was dying. And we drive up onto the road that runs right to the hospital. And my dad takes a right, moving away from the hospital. And I'm in so much pain, I can't even talk. But in my mind, I'm thinking, are we going to his office? My dad's a dentist, a retired dentist, but he was practicing at that time. Are we going to his office? Does he, does he think he can do something to help me? Are we going to the the pharmacy, does he think he can write a prescription that's going to help me? Where are we going? Maybe we're driving to a friend's house that's a doctor and he thinks that he can treat me there. And finally, I just yelled out, where are we going? Well, we were actually going to the other hospital in town, which was a little bit further away. And Dad had his reasons for it. But here's the point of the story. 
when you're going through that pain, when you are sick, when you feel like you're being stabbed in the back, where do you need to go? Well, you don't need to go to a pharmacy. And you don't need to go to a dental office. And you don't need to go to a friend's house. Where you need to go is the emergency room of the holy name of Jesus Hospital. That's where you need to be. So now let's talk about the church. In our passage today, we see Jesus reclining at the table with the Pharisees, and excuse me, reclining at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners. And Jesus responds to the questions of the Pharisees and says, is there any better place for them to be? Is there any better place for them to be than right here in my presence? And so that's the church. Because we know that according to the word of God that Jesus is present here. The church is his bride. And so there's no better place for sinful people to be than the church. This is where they should come. This is where I need to be. I need the church. I need Jesus to deal with my sinful heart. I need the word. I need the sacraments. I need the fellowship. I need the encouragement. I need the accountability. I need the church. Because I'm a sinner. This is where I need to be in order to see Jesus. And so, we're a church plant. We're in the very beginning. But we need it woven into our DNA that we are a hospital for sick and sinful people. That this is not a hall of fame for the righteous. That this is where people need to come to see Jesus. And we need to welcome them. And we need to tell them the word of God. And we need to tell them how he changes everything. And we need to lead them to the cross. And we need to point to his grace over and over and over again. And you know what? I'm going to be leading that charge because I need to be led to the cross every single day and I need to be reminded of His grace every single day and I need to look to Jesus over and over and over. This is the right place for broken, struggling, sinful people. Right here. And so our role as God's people is that we lift up the cross before their eyes, that we point to Jesus, that we talk of His goodness over and over again, that we encourage each other in the Word, that we love each other in the name of Jesus. That's what you do as a church. We are a family because we have been adopted through the atoning work of our older brother, Jesus. And so... I'm getting to know a lot of you. But I don't fully know what you bring to this place. But I do know this. I know that Jesus is at the table. And He's telling us to come dine with Him. And he's calling us and telling us to come spend time with Him. He's here. And it's our responsibility to issue invitations to all those who are apart from Him and say, come and dine 
Come to this table of forgiveness. Come to this table of mercy. Come to this table of grace. Come sit and relax with the one who is the very definition of wisdom and love. Come meet him. Come here. This is a community of people who have experienced the impossible. A community of people who have experienced the impossible. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that You have done this for us, that You are a loving Savior, a majestic Redeemer, that You have given Your life for us, and that You invite sinners, that You invite those who are struggling, You invite those who are hurting to come to Your table and to find forgiveness and healing. Lord, we rejoice that you have done the impossible. It's in your name we pray. Amen.